Thrive Leadership Podcast in three, two, cue music. This is the Thrive Leadership Podcast. Podcast. It's a place to connect you to nationally acclaimed leaders, their insights, and ideas on how to help you thrive in every area of your life. 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 On today's episode, Johnny Moore. The one thing I've heard again and again and again from persecuted Christians, every place I've been all around the world, is that they feel forgotten, not by their political leaders, but by their brothers and their sisters in Christ. Now your hosts, Brad Lominick and CJ Alvarado. Welcome back to the Thrive Leadership Podcast. CJ Alvarado, Brad Lominick. We are your host. We are your captains of your ship that are going to hopefully sail you into the seas of inspiration. You know, we've gone from going into space mm-hmm. to moving across the seas. Yeah. We may traverse the planes. That's a good question to ask you. Before we get to Johnny Moore, our guest on this episode, which, folks, I'm telling you, this is going to be one of those conversations that will challenge and impact you. Right. So you may not know the name Johnny Moore. You may have looked at the title of this episode on the old iTunes or Stitcher or on your phone and thought, I don't know who Johnny Moore is, but I'm going to listen because I'm on this journey with Brad and CJ and the Thrive community. But just stay with us. Yeah. Because this Incredible is, interview. This is really, really good stuff. Johnny Moore is one of the experts, one of the voices that we need to listen to, especially around the persecuted church mm. and the work he's doing all over the world, especially in the Middle East, is really, really important and impactful. But I got to ask you. Okay. Back to the space, sea, land, or land. air. Okay. Space, sea, land, or air. Mm. If Elon Musk walked in the room right now and said, CJ, you have your choice. Any of those four, which of those areas of exploration would you most want to jump into with whatever kind of vehicle you could create? Me personally? Yeah. I think I'd go space. Colonize Mars, baby. Are you going space shuttle or are you going like... Apollo 13. Let's assume that the ride is virtually the same because obviously the space shuttle is going to be a better ride than Apollo 13 Sure. because the technology got better or even today. Mm-hmm. Are you going like, I don't know what the rocket is today that we're jumping in on. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it is. I feel like Elon would create more of like a Cadillac rocket. Did so- you see, by the way, in his TED interview with Chris Anderson, Yeah. he showed a, a picture of the rocket that they're building for going to Mars. Right. Not just one trip, but no, right. you know, taking people to Mars. Right. It's massive. It's first massive, of all. yeah. And it's I bet it's like Delta Comfort. It looks a lot more like what you'd see in a like a Star Wars movie. Right. Not just your typical Apollo rocket. I think I might go see. Okay. Because I want to go down there with Jacques Cousteau. Mm. He was one of the legendary scuba explorers guys? of the underwater. Right. But I want Elon Musk to make me the best sea exploration craft that is possible. explore the depths, huh? I want to explore the depths. And it would have to be sophisticated just because of the pressure. Oh, yeah. I'm not right? dealing with any of the pressure. Yeah. I want to be able to go to like 12,000 feet below sea level mm-hmm. and not even know that that's that you're down really that, that deep. Yeah. yeah. Now, what would be ultimate is if I could do that and quickly, like the Transformers, be shot out of the water, up into the air, and then into space. So I get a triple right there. And yeah. then I land on land when I come back. That's pretty amazing. Shoot me out of the water, through the air, into space, and then I land <laughs> back on the runway. <laughs> I, want, I want the whole enchilada. Wow. Yeah, all together. I was going to say, as much as we're kind of kidding here a little bit, even though I would like to go to space, and I do wholeheartedly believe you'd like to go deep down into the sea. Yes. As fast as technology is progressing, 30 years from now, we don't know what we'll have. We're getting closer and closer to the Jetsons. We really are. And to think that we don't even know what kind of technology will be ruling our lives 20 years from now, it's not really that 
long of a time is pretty insane. Yeah. So you never know, Brad. You don't know. But what we do know is that we've got an incredible interview ahead. Yes. There are lots of things going on around the world that Mm -hmm. we need to be aware of as leaders, especially as church leaders, as Christian leaders. And Johnny Moore is, again, one of those folks that are on the front lines of what's happening. And so we sit down with him to talk about his work with the persecuted church, understanding how we should view it, what our role should be. Many of us, most of us probably part of this podcast community and part of Thrive or here in the U.S. So, you know, we would consider ourselves to be not necessarily living in a stage or a time or a cultural mandate of persecution, but lots of Christians around the world are. Right. And so we're going to dig into that. And this is going to both hopefully challenge you as well as convict you and a little bit of encouragement too. So this is our conversation with Johnny Moore. Johnny Moore in the house. Good to have you here, friend. Good to be back. We go back many years. Yes. I don't know where I first met you. I'm thinking of, I was trying to think of when we first I think I was stalking you. I, I think, you know, you're a <laughs> exactly. superstar leadership guy, and I was oh, in yeah. over my head. Right, right, right. And yeah. I, need, I needed some advice. And this so was, somebody said, where's Brad? You were 22 and already a VP at Liberty. You basically came out of the womb it's as amazing a, as a, as what a VP. can happen if you just lie a lot. Hey, <laughs> listen, my theory is this, that, you know, you hang around and, and add value, and people elevate you to positions of influence. Well, you know, in my case, you know, at Liberty, I, I was 19 years old. I went up to the president founder of Liberty and I, I said, I was concerned that Liberty was like this big Christian college in Lynchburg, Virginia, and there were all these secular colleges. We weren't reaching them. And to my great surprise, he gave me a job to reach them you yeah. know, at 19. You know, it's just faithful and little things and things grow, you know? Yeah. So, but he always was there too, to kind of bat me around when I messed up. You know, you need both. Yeah. It feels like one of the themes of your life so far and I don't want to label you, but I think this would be true and love to hear your thoughts on it, is like you've been given opportunities way before you were ready, yeah. way before you felt like you had the pedigree or you had the wisdom or experience. And I think that's true for a lot of leaders you that just... end up having influences. They get out there on the end of their skis and go, oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you just act, right? I mean, everybody talks, but you just act. And when you're given an opportunity, and this is my, I mean, I, I would have nothing if people wouldn't have believed in me. It's not just one person. It's a series of people that just threw me in. But, you know, this is the way it used to be. I mean, it used mm. to be, it wasn't like you got your education, you got your internship, you got everything in order, and then you just went to it. You know, you just dove in. You know, you started working in the family business. If you had an idea, you worked on it. You, you didn't have this series of preparation. Now we're sort of delaying everything. Mm. Uh, and I do think it affects us. In my case, it was, you know, my sort of my personal story. My parents divorced when I was a kid, 12 years old, and we were in poverty. I learned to do magic tricks. I started working at a local restaurant. So I was like working as a kid, you know, so I just got a jump start, I think. You did spend many years at Liberty. You were part of the, the leadership there and, and did a number of things. After Liberty, spent some time working with Mark Burnett. Yeah, yeah. And then now bring us up to speed. Yeah, I mean, I, I was at Liberty for 13 years. You know, it was a long time. And yeah. you know, I was senior vice president, and I ran into Mark and Jordan in a meeting uh, related to the persecution of Christians, which is an issue I, I care a lot about, which, by the way, I think that is the thread, actually, in my life. I, mm. I think every opportunity was on the other side of helping other people. Mm. And it's just you meet people within the context of shared passion, and then everything else follows. So Mark, you know invited me to come to Hollywood, which I loved and I did for a few years. And then something in my heart was telling me that I needed to help lots of other people, right? I exclusively focused on Liberty and I was exclusively focused on Mark Burnett. 
I never imagined I would start anything, but my wife had been telling me for a while that I, that I ought to consider it. And so I left Mark and I, I created a uh, consulting and public relations company. And so that's my livelihood. You know, I, have a, I have a public relations company that has uh, dozens of clients that were their PR firm of record and we're communications consultants for them. And it's a varied, varied group of people from you know, nonprofit organizations to high profile personalities. And so I own the company. So I'm actually a businessman you know, yeah. now. And yeah. that has afforded me the opportunity to invest more time in those issues that I'm passionate about, chief of which is this escalation of Christian persecution around the world and the fact that, you know, in our world today, biggest problem we have is we don't know how to live with people that are different than us anymore. Mm -hmm. And so working with Christians and actually in partnership with the Islamic community, you know, I've been able to do a lot as a business owner. I don't have a boss but myself, you know, to invest excess time and energy in, in trying to help help persecuted Christians. So, that, that you know, that's it. You know, I, I have a young family. You know, I have a... I have a little boy who's four and little girl who's two and I have a baby. He's three months old. And so we're also in that, that uh, crazy uh, phase of yeah, life. Mm -hmm. Three, three under four. We're insane. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this, this is refuge. I need a counselor. Is what I need. <laughs> so for those who maybe hear about persecution from a Facebook feed or something, maybe give us just what is the current landscape like around the world and help us get a, a clearer picture of what you're seeing. Yeah, it's probably worse than you think. I remember uh, when the whole ISIS thing, you know, started happening. I went over to Iraq right after uh, Mosul fell. ISIS was at their height. They were 20 kilometers from the Erbil airport. They actually, the day I was there, they they got within 15 kilometers of the Baghdad airport. You know, people didn't even notice this, but this was serious. And I went over there because I thought all this stuff was exaggerated. I felt like I was obligated to go. But on the same token, I was going to see like the reality. And when I got over there, I realized it was worse. So out of that experience, I wrote Defying ISIS, my first book on the subject. Now I'm coming back around to my next one, which is called The Martyr's Oath. And I just completed a three-month research project around the world documenting firsthand accounts of Christian persecution. Now I'm years into this. I know a lot more. I've been working on it a long time. Mm -hmm. you know, I've helped raise $25 million, and I've you know, done a ton of work to help these people. And yet, you know what I discovered? One more time, it's worse. Mm. It's worse. Did you know more Christians were killed in Nigeria last year than in Syria? In Nigeria. You Which is mean? supposedly a Christian right. country. I yeah. mean, many people would describe it as such. I happen to believe that religion is not the problem, actually. It's the solution. The best of faith defeats the worst of religion. You know, and one of my convictions is is that if we can get uh, the faith community engaged on a whole different level throughout the world, we can actually make a difference in this crisis. And so, I, you know, more recently, I've been working together with you know various Islamic leaders, you know, including heads of state and Christian leaders, to try to build bridges you know, out of a mutual concern for the persecution of Christians. Because actually, I, what I've discovered is that the Islamic community, like the King Abdullah of Jordan, the King of Bahrain. Uh, the Sultan of Oman, the King of Morocco, I mean, iconic Muslim leaders around the world are deeply, deeply concerned. President of Egypt, El-Sisi, deeply concerned about mm -hmm. what's happening to Christians, and yet they're sort of totally, uh, unbelievably surprised that two billion Christians on planet Earth aren't helping Christians. Mm. You know, and this is the very strange thing that's happening. Like, we're the largest... The Christian community is the largest religion in the world. Two billion people profess to follow Jesus Christ. In Iraq, 
the Christian population has gone from 1.5 million, 1.3 million to 250,000. In Syria, in five years, it's gone from maybe 2 million to 500,000. We saw the Palm Sunday bombings in Egypt, but a week before that, we had 141 Christian families that were run out of a village in the Sinai by ISIS terrorists in the Sinai in Egypt. And yet, the one thing I've heard again and again and again from persecuted Christians, every place I've been all around the world, is that they feel forgotten, not by their political leaders, but by their brothers and their sisters in Christ. And that I'm on this mission to sort of awaken the church, the free church, to help the persecuted church. And in turn, they'll actually help themselves too, because we don't really know Christianity mm. until we see it through the eyes of someone that it costs them something. It's perplexing to me with all that we have at our disposal in terms of just technology. Why are they not being helped? What's the problem? <laughs> this is the uh, this is the most difficult question. Right? The most difficult question isn't how do you solve the Syrian mm-hmm. conflict or you know what do you do about you know the Shiite and Sunni issues in the Middle East. You know, there are lots of conflicts sure. in Russia and you know, all this craziness we're living in. This is the most complicated question to me. Like, why do we not do this? And yet, these Christians are willing to die for a Jesus we're barely willing to live for. One of the convictions I've discovered recently in my own heart is that when you read the New Testament, persecution is in every part of the New Testament. It's like, it's indispensable you know, as part of the Christian experience. You, you can't divide Christianity from the persecution narrative which tells me that we can't fully live our faith unless we're living in proximity to persecution, which means Mm -hmm. as the free church, we are obligated to not only help the persecuted church, but to have the persecuted church as a part of our family. And only then will we discover the true faith. I mean, you see it in the New Testament, right? You see Paul and Peter writing to uh, free Christians to pray for the persecuted Christians, calling upon us to do that. And I think one of the reasons why we have the, like what the New Testament calls a form of godliness with no power, mm-hmm. and what we, you know, the hypocrisy, all this other stuff that we experience is because uh, we, we, we're missing this key, key part that if we are not persecuted ourselves, we are obligated to find a way to get close uh, to that. And this is one of the reasons why I've written this book, The Martyr's Oath. I'm, I'm not retelling their stories. We recorded the stories and it's just translated. It's their actual words. Like... Um, this woman rose in Nigeria. Uh, Boko Haram came in her house. They beheaded her husband. They beheaded her kids. She's running away. They're slicing her as she's running away. They said, say Allah Akbar, say Allah Akbar. They were trying to convert her to make her their wife. And Rose told us, meek little lady, not a strong lady, not a famous lady, not a leader lady, it's a normal lady. She said, every time they told me to say Allah Akbar, She said, I don't know why, I don't know how I did it, but I just said Jesus. And I didn't whisper Jesus, I said Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Allah Akbar, Jesus, Allah Akbar, Jesus. Amazing stories. And it just, even now, you know, telling this story, there are Mm. 10,000 like them, we feel the power of Jesus Christ, right? And we don't see that a lot in Western Christianity, and we wonder why things are so off sometimes. Maybe it's this, I don't know. The practical, I know this is the tough question, hmm. but the practical part of if you're if you're sitting in a room with a bunch of senior pastors, hmm. staff of churches, and they're going, Johnny, we're in. We realize hmm. that we're missing the boat on this. What, what do you want us to do? Yeah, it's actually not that hard. The first thing they ought to do, that we ought to do, is stop thinking of like, 
once in 52 weeks of the year we highlight the persecuted church. You know, this ought to be like an every Sunday thing. Now I know, you know, it's a fighting for time in the agenda and all this. But somewhere within the church, you know, across it, we ought to pastors in their sermons, in our prayers, and I, you know, we, we ought to make this a part of the narrative. Secondly, we need to do what happened in the New Testament when the poor church in Jerusalem was inflicted with a famine. They were in trouble. The rich church in Antioch provided for them. And this is what we have to do. You know, we have to step up as the rich and free church and provide practical needs for the uh, persecuted church. On the giving part, the charitable part, where should they... I know I'm getting really tactical, but, yeah, yeah, but no. where do we go? Like, who do we write the check to? First of all, there are lots of them, right? I personally am a fan of World Help, the Open Doors International, you know, these organizations that I, I either work with or, or support. I help found uh, the Cradle Fund, uh, which still exists within the Institute for Global Engagement. Organizations like World Vision are on the ground helping Christians. There are lots, everyone's at, everyone's at work. But in an ideal world, in addition to doing all that stuff, churches ought to be connected with churches in mm. the Middle East. Mm -hmm. It's not that hard. I went over there. I met people, and when I met people, they had needs. Just a little while ago, I got a, a WhatsApp message from a pastor in, in Aleppo, in Aleppo, Syria, WhatsApp message. By the way, he's chosen to stay in Aleppo, despite everything that's happened, because of the amazing opportunity he has to be a light of Jesus. He could have left, mm. he decided to stay. He said, Johnny, things have calmed down a little. The banks wanna take away the houses of five of our Christian families. And it spoke to my heart because we have to preserve the presence of Christians in the Middle East. And as soon as the chaos ended in this particular part of town, the corruption came in. You know, and all of us, we argue back and forth, should we do that? Should we, how do we vet that? The Bible says if one member of the body is suffering, everyone's suffering. Like, you know, I know this guy. I don't have to vet him. He's, mm -hmm. I know him. Right. He's like my brother. He's a pastor. I know him. So it was like, I just gave him the money. And you know what I did? For a reasonable amount of money... I was able to buy these people's houses, just give them back to them. And that's five families that were not going to be homeless. Like, you know, in an ideal world, the way it should be is we should be writing our own epistles. You know, to my brother in so-and-so persecuted place, it's with, in our hearts we pray for you, and, you know, and, and I persuaded this church to give to you. Like, we have to get close to the Eastern Church. After all, it's a Middle Eastern religion, mm -hmm. okay? This is the heart of everything, and so... Yeah, you could give to all the usual actors, and you should, but we really ought to get to a place where we actually know these people. You can go to Lebanon, you can go to Iraq, you go to these places. You know, one time we took a bunch of Syrian pastors out of Syria into Lebanon just to give them a break because they're like in a war. They're not fighting in a physical war, but they are in the front line of a spiritual war. They could have left. They chose to stay, so we gave them the gift of a breather, right? Even in Lebanon, I was with a Lebanese a Christian pastor who was visiting the United States, and he had his Lebanese cell phone, and a uh, text message popped up, and it was a picture of a gun. And he was just telling me that this person is harassing him continually, telling him he's going to kill him and all these things. Um, but you know what? The guy's just fearless. If God's done with me, then I'll be done. Right? <laughs> he just keeps serving people. I mean, th and this is this by not going... You're robbing your own faith. You're robbing the faith of your church. Like, you have to go on the front lines. There is no fear in love, right? We go into it. Where's the best place that you feel like is curating this conversation? Obviously, you're doing this. So where can folks get more of the story? You know, because they're hearing this podcast interview. They're going, hey, 
I need to jump on that train. Johnny, you're challenging me. You're inspiring me to get involved. Where do I start? What's the website or the the place I need to obviously reading your books. I mean, cause you're writing, you're an expert, you're talking and being a thought leader around this conversation. So start with the books, but then what else? You know, unfortunately, what I'm kind of hoping is that people listening to us now, pastors of churches and leaders start what we're talking about. You know, I, I'm no expert on this. So I have no education and I just have personal experience. I went and got on the ground. And so I, I think, you know, my, my best answer to that question is I hope a lot comes from this conversation today because there's not a lot out there. You know, I've already mentioned Open Doors, and you know, Open Doors is a great organization with global influence, and they curate a lot of information. It's a, it's a great frontline place to go to. And what I love about Open Doors is it's ecumenical in its nature. You know, it's, it's you know, the terrorists, when they come into the villages in Iraq and Syria, they don't ask who are the Catholics and who are the evangelicals. It's just the people with the cross. In fact, by the way, in the Nineveh Plain, the ISIS terrorists, were most offended by the cross. The first thing they did, they took the cross off the churches. We all saw that. What people don't know, though, is they actually carved the crosses out of the Christian tombstones. They wanted to wipe away the history. So now, all over the Nineveh Plain, now that these cities are being liberated from the terrorist, the cities are just totally decimated. You know, I think a lot of us in the West, we think like, you know, with the United States, the United Nations, we will rebuild all that. Do you know that in the tens of billions of dollars our country alone spent in rebuilding Iraq, we only had $10 million allocated to the Christians in the Nineveh Plain in the last war before ISIS, and that $10 million, it was later discovered, was stolen. So we have to step up. You know, there's someone listening here that could be a part of, like, rebuilding a town, rebuilding an ancient cathedral that was there for 500 years and now is in rubble. This could happen. Leadership-wise, I want to ask you, you're around people of power. That's one of the things that you've been given to steward is relationships with people of great influence in places of great power. From your perspective, this is a leadership podcast, sitting in some of those seats, what are you seeing? What are you learning? You know, this is more of top of mind. You're, you're having conversations. You're around folks. It's always interesting to get a perspective from someone who is both leading running an organization, speaking, writing, but also around leaders. Mm. What are some of the things that you're seeing or you're maybe encouraged by? It's a difficult question. I mean, I, I, uh, I feel like I'm constantly on this learning curve, but the greatest conviction I have presently on this subject is I have no litmus test for friendship, none. We're living in a world right now where everyone has to ask someone else's advice before they decide what they believe. People have to decide if it's appropriate to be friends with this person or that person or whatever. Like, there's nothing Christian about that. As Christians, we are the people that are connected to everyone. This is, this is what makes us unique. You know, I have no litmus test for friendship. I, I also have, like, I have no desire for the public to know everything I'm a part of doing. This thing where everybody sort of tweets who they saw and what they did. And went, we were just talking about, you know, before this podcast, you know, my last week, which is like crazy. I'm not going to say it here, but it's crazy. But one of the reasons why my last week and last two weeks, you know, with very, very serious world leaders, these types of things, is because I'm not out there, like, hijacking their influence mm. to sell a book or to make myself feel good about myself on Twitter. We have to, you know, come to this place of recognizing that Influence is something that has to be stewarded, yeah. and you use it in service to others. And the other thing I, I would say is, you know, I'm generally of the conviction that you 
publicly praise and you privately criticize. Because sometimes you do have to publicly criticize. But most of us, we criticize so often that we've lost our voice. So in moments of true injustice, we've prostituted our influence out. So often, we have no influence left whatsoever. Mm. You know, and so, so for me, I mean, I, I am, uh, I'm the type of person that will uh, publicly praise and privately criticize. And I don't put a lot of value in controversy either because everything is controversial to someone. It's a moot point. It's irrelevant. You have to do what's right. That's really helpful. And I think what I hear you saying as well is the relational equity mm. that so many of us want. So many of us desire the relational equity to build a bridge that allows us to have credibility, that then allows us to create opportunity for greater impact, that that has to be stewarded. You don't just walk in and create that from the beginning. Over time, you're trusted, you're appropriate with conversations, you're not taking every opportunity to then publicly display how important you are. I mean, those are all like things that a lot of us are messing up on. And you think before you talk, this is a world that is incredibly divided. Yeah. You know, and there's this amazing parable that Jesus told him. Everybody listening to us has heard it. It's a, I think it's in Matthew chapter 18. Remember, there's a guy that was the king, and there was a guy that owed like millions of dollars, right? And the king forgave it. And the guy went out to the court and mm -hmm. found a guy that owed pennies, and he put the guy in prison. And I was reading it the other day, and I noticed a part of it that I, I'd never noticed before. It says that the people, essentially the culture, turned the guy into the king because they recognized his hypocrisy. And I think this happens to us as the church all the time, right? As we say, we preach love. You guys say you love us and you judge us. You know, like you're walking around with a tree in your eye. You know, I mean, all these things. And this is the world we're living in right now where the culture is judging us. But it's so upside down. You know, like I, I was a part of a thing that just took place where uh, it was a decision that um, with some political leaders that made a little bit of progress in the right direction. But because it didn't go all the way, there were uh, some friends that were criticizing us. And th this particular uh, decision is a decision related to uh, freedom of speech. And I just stepped back and looked at the irony of it. That those of us that move the degree two or three degrees, not a hundred degrees, mm. we're doing it in their defense of criticizing right. us. Exactly. Now, yeah. and, and this is the irony where we just have to think and we have to do it within context of relationship and not talk about people, but talk to people. Mm. You know, and, and when leaders or anybody else can trust you, the most valuable thing in the world is not money. All the billions of dollars that some people have, not the most valuable thing in the world. The most valuable thing in the world, in faith, in religion, in your family, and everything you can imagine, is trust. If someone trusts you, everything changes. You have validation of this. I mean, you just recently got an award that I saw. Talk about that experience, because this is a case study of people honoring a friendship and mm -hmm. relational equity through an award you got with people look at it and go, wait, y'all don't agree on everything. Yeah, yeah I mean, this was um, because I've been working on persecuted Christians for a while. I most of my work has been behind the scenes. I have no organization. You know, I could have raised $25 million from my own organization and given it, even when we started the Cradle Fund, you know, we, we had no fiduciary responsibility because I had, was under the conviction if I helped other people, I could do more because people mm. would question my motives. So uh, suddenly, after all this work I've been doing, a major Jewish human rights organization noticed this, the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles. 
And so every year in this big Hollywood gala with all the you know leading lights of Hollywood, they give these medals of valor away. And they called me out of the blue and they told me they were going to give me a medal of valor for standing up for Christians in the Middle East, a Jewish organization, giving me a medal of valor. And the other recipients on the same evening uh, were posthumous honorees, uh, Shimon Peres, the, mm. you know, the famous prime minister of Israel who negotiated the Oslo Accords an American GI who saved 200 Jews in World War II, their sons would have received their awards. I would be the only living recipient. And at first, I turned it down. I tried to turn it down to the rabbi on the phone. And the rabbi quoted to me a Jewish uh, proverb that says, you know, those who do not feel they deserve honor are deserving of honor. <laughs> so, so he totally, you know, yeah. I, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And, you know, got me. It uh, got me. Right, so I accept this award, and it turns out that in the crowd was the personal envoy of a Muslim king. In a Jewish event, mm-hmm. honoring a Christian. Put that one and together. It's yeah. crazy. It's only God does these things. And then 10 days later, I'm in this Muslim king's palace talking about the establishment of an initiative on Christian and Islamic cooperation for the purpose of preserving Christianity in the Middle East. And by the way, that's led to lots of other, just, you know, just I was sitting down in a dinner with two Orthodox Jewish rabbis, two scholars of Islam a former prime minister of a country and a former foreign minister of a country, one Muslim, one Christian, myself, and all of us are deeply religious. We're not like people who don't believe anything. We're all Orthodox Jews, you know, committed Muslim imam. Like, you know, I'm a committed evangelical Christian. It's like we didn't have to check our beliefs at the door to have a dialogue, Mm. right? And one of the things that politically correct culture has done to us is we think we have to delude our beliefs in order to make peace and actually we just prolong the conflict because the conflict is among believers. You know, we have to find a way forward as believers, hmm. and that takes place through dialogue. And this is the stuff God does. I mean, this is no reason this shit all happen. Uh, but you see these hints of providence. But you know what? When the guy invited me to go, I went. You know, I went within 10 days to that country. I didn't wait. And I think this is what people have to do. You know, as much as is in your power, you act. You don't just talk. The world is changed by action. You ask yourself, you know, what should I do today and what's next? What should I do today? What's next? And you're going to act if you care, even if it's wrong. And most of us, we just talk and we don't do anything, even if it's a little thing. You said something earlier, and I just want to pick up on it. You said something along the lines that, and I don't want to uh, misspeak, but at the heart of some of this conflict is just the fact that we can't get along with people who have religious differences. But you alluded to that there being maybe more space than we think there is to build bridges and relationships. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because you glazed right over it. Yeah, I mean, I, I my experience in the Middle East, people don't know how to live with people that are different than them anymore. Mm. By the way, it's the same thing in this country. Democrats don't know how to live with Republicans anymore, you know, evangelicals and Catholics, Muslims and Christians. Go across the board with all yeah. these divisions. And it's just so very strange that we, we have these self-perpetuating divisions. And yet, in my experience, normally when you reach out to whoever the other person is, whatever the other is, mm. you know, not only is the other willing to talk to you, but I guarantee you will have one of the most interesting, memorable, powerful, impactful experiences of your life and you won't have to decide out of that conversation what you will do that will help make the world a better place because you've already done it. And the relationships that come from that, it's just a matter of building those bridges and reaching across. And as Christians, that's not a cool thing to do. That's a moral obligation that we have. 
you're the Apostle Paul, right? The least likely guy to change the world, he was he was a terrorist, killing Christians, right? And then he changed. And I grew up thinking he's the least likely person to change the world in my Sunday school class as a kid. He wasn't the least likely person to change the world. He was trained by a top Jewish rabbi. He was a Roman citizen, and he was from the city of Tarsus, which was the center of Greek culture. And when I was in seminary, I learned if you wanted to understand the biblical world, you had to understand three things, Roman politics, Jewish religion, and Greek culture. And by the way, all three of those were irreconcilable, but they all existed inside of the Apostle Paul. And because they all existed there, he could move fluidly in and out of cities and talk with different people. When he went to Athens, he was using the philosopher's language. And when he was battling with Rome, he could appeal to Caesar. And when the rabbis wanted to tangle with him, they had an argument on their hands. Like it was in the perceived irreconcilable differences that actually he was able to change the world. You know, I think on a communal level, it is the best of faith that defeats the worst of religion. Religion is the solution. It's not the problem. In these places of intractable conflict in almost every part of the world, Worst refugee crisis, this is modern history, 60 million people. Religion is in all of that. And the only people left with the moral authority that the governments don't have are the religious leaders. They're the ones that can make peace. And, you know, there's this argument about the role of government, the role of the church. To me, it's very clear. God ordains government to provide security. God ordains the church to serve people, right? If the church is doing its job, the government has less security to provide, Right? If the church is serving people and making peace and moving forward, and there was an election in an African country, previous guy wouldn't step down, we were on the verge of a war and an ethnic war. These are the worst. A million people would have died. But the Catholic archbishop got together with a Muslim imam in the city. They were the only ones with the moral authority because the political world had become so corrupt that they brokered peace and probably saved millions of lives. And when we, by the way, as Christians, diminish the role of religion as the solution, and we allow politicians to not see religion as a partner in this, then we exacerbate it. You know, so this is why people are like, what do I have to do with these crises? Why should I go to the Middle East? But you're exactly who ought to be in the heart of this you know, because we bring moral authority and experience, and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Man, I hear that challenge loud and clear for the church to get out there and care for people. If you, you know, had that pastor driving in their car on the way to work and had one more thing to say to them, what is your message to those leaders who are going back to churches and leading congregations and communities? Any final words you'd say to them? Totally unrelated to what we've been talking about here. Um, I would say to them, listen to the Word of God. Don't just read it. Listen to it. And this is uh, something that's fresh on my heart in the last few days. I've started um, not just reading the Bible. As I read the Bible, I know it's coming because I know it so well. I've taught it so much for so long. and I. But when I go in my hotel room when I'm traveling and I just like, put the app and I press play on whatever chapter, and I just let it play for 45 minutes or an hour as I'm doing other things, immersing myself in the Word of God, and it just changes me, right? And I hear things differently, and Jesus suddenly preaches to me again. You know, bless those that curse. Bless them. Do good to those that you have. You just feel it in a different way. And I, I think leaders listening to leadership podcasts sometimes could be looking for best practices in lieu of supernatural power, right? It's both and. It's not either or. But one is more important than the other. And that's my, uh, my little word of advice is uh, maybe as soon as we're done talking here, take your phone not music, not another podcast, not another bit of advice. 
just listen to God for a moment. Good stuff from Johnny Moore. Once again, you can check him out online. He mentioned the PR and communications company, which is called Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, which is his organization that he started and works with a lot of different organizations and personalities and authors and thought leaders, helping them manage public relations and do communication and sort of set the tone for what they're saying in the public square. And then obviously a passion point and a huge part of his call in life is to raise the banner of the persecuted church around the world. He said some pretty convicting things. I think the idea of the church not going to help its own is something we all can hopefully think about, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And uh, what is our role in all of this? You know, it's, it's a big issue. I feel a little bit lost for words after, you know, hearing him talk because there's so much to process and sometimes you're very much insulated from a lot of things that are just happening outside of your own little city, your own community. I mean, just a whole nother world out there, man. So I'm so appreciative of voices like Johnny. He's written a couple of books. So allow him to be a thought leader and a guide on this journey for you because so many of us would raise our hands and go, Man, I, I want to be aware and I want to be knowledgeable, but I'm not even sure where to start. Right. He's one of those folks that, again, are they're on the front lines, and he's on the front lines. You know, he also sort of dodged my question about people of power and influence, and that's on purpose. But he is sitting at a lot of tables with people that have a lot of power. And one of the things that we need to do is pray for him in that role with different leaders and politics and leaders in business and leaders in culture, leaders in entertainment. He's having influence and opportunities to make a difference in the lives of people that can make a difference in a lot of lives of people. Yeah. So let's be diligent about lifting him up and praying for him and praying for wisdom. You know, the guy's still a pretty young guy. Yeah. He's in his early 30s and he's getting to sit at tables that a lot of us would love to. And that's our job to, you know, sort of make sure that he's showing up with the right ammunition and the right wisdom and the right discernment that goes beyond his years in many ways. So let's be diligent to do that. Good word. We're still at thriveconference.org, obviously, if you're trying to reach us, podcast at thriveconference.org. You're you're not saying that with a lot of enthusiasm, CJ. I've toned it down. You've toned it down. I don't feel like you really invited me at that point right there to... Maybe I'm just still processing. You are processing from a heavy conversation. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. With Johnny Moore. You didn't come out with your usual, like, CJ (laughs) enthusiasm there. Well, to reach us... (laughs) (laughs) Hit us at podcast at thriveconference.org. Back to myself. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, we would. Follow us on Twitter at Brad Lominick, at CJ Alvarado. And at Thrive Tweets. And at Thrive Tweets. We're still working on that, folks. Anybody at Twitter, please help us. (laughs) Lord, help us. Oh, help us. We're still tweeting from the old at Thrive Tweets. That's right. The good news is this, that anything you get from the at Thrive Tweets is going to be valuable. That is very true. Incredible articles, videos, clips, all kinds of good stuff. So we appreciate you being a part of this community. We really do believe that healthy leaders will create thriving churches. And your job as a leader is to be healthy. So live this out. Let's make that our motto. Until next time, this is the Thrive Leadership Podcast. The Thrive Leadership Podcast is hosted by CJ Alvarado and Brad Lominick and is produced by Kip Johns. To download and share this and other Thrive podcasts, go to thriveconference.org.